0: Do you think most people believe the Bible today? If so, you've been living under a rock. Many people hate the Bible. More and more people think the Bible is nothing but the flawed philosophical ramblings of a bunch of unenlightened chauvinists at best, or an actual attempt to deceive people into falsehood for the sake of power and money, at worst. This is why we need to start not only with belief in the Bible, but with reasons to believe what the Bible says. Now, someone might say, you don't need to try to convince anyone. If they don't believe the Bible, there's no hope for them anyway. Or you might be of the persuasion that there's no point in trying to convince anyone of anything about God. They'll either believe or they won't. Understand the sentiment. But let me simply point out that it was the Apostle Paul who said, I try by all possible means to to persuade as many as I can. He was talking about faith in Christ. But how do you know about the need for faith in Christ? We know from the Bible. The Apostle Peter said we should be ready to give an answer for the reason for the hope that we have, which really boils down to believing the promises of the Bible. So, what I'm saying is that especially these days, we can't really start with the Bible when it comes to most people outside the church. Not if we want to try to persuade them by all possible means. And for the record, the, apostle, the apostles didn't always start with the Bible either, depending on the audience. In reality, they didn't even have the New Testament yet, where the gospel is most clearly explained. They had witnessed it. They had experienced it. But they didn't have it in writing because they were still writing it. Do you know what the earliest Christ followers started with when they wanted to try to persuade people? They started with faith. Faith. And faith is exactly where we must start. Wait a minute, Pastor. I thought, I thought you were saying we ought to start with reasons to believe the Bible. Well, that's kind of the topic today. But actually, even in this, we need to start with faith. How so? Well, we need to explain that no one is ever going to be convinced by facts alone to believe that God has spoken or certainly that the Bible is the way that he has spoken. Make no mistake, we're actually asking people to start with at least some kind of faith. Or we might say at least a desire for faith. After all, faith is required if you're going to get anything out of the Bible. But why should you have faith? Why did the biblical writers have faith? Why do I have faith? Because of our experiences with God. Did Jesus expect people to somehow automatically have faith? There's absolutely no reason behind it. No rationale. No evidence. No experience. No. In fact, Jesus performed miracles and ultimately rose from the dead to prove that he was God and spoke for God. The apostles and the prophets before them did miracles to prove they spoke and wrote for God. And now we have their inspired word. God's word. The Bible. But why should we believe it? Just because? No. God has given us many convincing proofs. And we should encourage people to allow those proofs to empower their faith. But that's the trick that I'm trying to point out. If you are dead set against having faith. No evidence on earth will give it to you. if you start with the presupposition that nothing supernatural can possibly be real, for example, I doubt any evidence will make much difference for you. But then you are here today. Maybe you're ready to give God a chance. Maybe you're ready to give the Bible a chance. Maybe you're ready to listen with a heart that at least Would like to believe. If so this message. Might just make a difference. If I could ask for the sound to be turned down just a hair. I'm hearing a ringing and it's. If it's not bothering anyone else. Well it's bothering me. It's possible we need to move the speakers a little bit. I don't know. As I mentioned last week, uh, most of our sermons here at Go Church are walking through Scripture. Just, Just walking through Scripture, pretty much verse by verse. But right now we're taking a break from normal to do this big, hairy, audacious question series. And interestingly, this message today lays the foundation for why I preach the way I normally preach that being the careful application of the very words of the bible why would i spend so much time on a normal week teaching our people how to apply the words of scripture to their real lives because i believe the bible is the very word of god as do most of us who take the time to sit and listen each and every week but again why should we believe it On one hand, it's probably true that some of us church folks basically believe blindly. Sure, I grew up believing it. You got me. I'm pretty sure I'm better off for it. But yeah, I've always believed the Bible is from God. That's true. Some Christians believe because they have always believed. And that's not necessarily a bad thing since it's true. (laughs) But others disbelieve with equal apathy. And that really doesn't make sense. Many people today dismiss the idea of a God who has revealed himself, and they do so without carefully examining the evidence for the book that claims to be that revelation. Those who dismiss what we believe God has said in the Bible have mostly heard only one side of the arguments: the side that says there's no reason to believe one religious book over any other religious book. The side that says the natural world, that that which can be measured and, and scientifically explained must be all there is. The side that says we can never know for certain, so why believe any of it? I would ask such a one, have you ever considered the consequences if you're wrong about this? Have you ever thought, what if God actually has spoken? I mean, what if the Bible really is From God. Everything I believe and everything this church stands for comes from the Bible. Christianity is completely dependent upon the question of whether the Bible is a true revelation from God or not. And that's precisely why the Bible's been so viciously attacked for two millennia now. If the Bible can be shown to be just another book written by fallible human beings, void of supernatural inspiration, then Christianity falls. And ultimately, there is no reason for us to even be here this morning. However, consider the converse. If the Bible is from God, Christianity holds the key to everything that really matters. And so perhaps the most important question that you could ever answer centers around whether or not the Bible is truth from God. There's no bigger question. Either God has spoken to mankind through Scripture, or we're still guessing. The implications are enormous. The Bible offers a personal relationship with the Creator. By His grace, through our faith in Jesus Christ, who came to take away our sins, to make a way for us to be forgiven, so that we can live in peace with God, and ultimately live with Him forever, in a perfect place that He's preparing for us. We know about all this, and believe all of this, because we hold that this ancient text is God's revelation of Himself to mankind. Many of us saying this as children. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. You know the rest. How do we know? The Bible tells me so. How else would we know? Meanwhile, it's absolutely true that if the Bible is not from God, Christianity is the biggest hoax of human history. If the Bible's not from God, Christianity is a farce. If the Bible's not from God, we're playing a 2,000-year-old game of nonsense. Actually, a 6,000-year-old game because the roots of Christianity are in Judaism and the Old Testament's the foundation of the New Testament. So really, if the Bible's not from God, Christianity and biblical Judaism are both frauds that go back to the very beginning of human history. Is this book... Really 6,000 years worth of lies? Or does this book contain everything God wants humanity to know about him? That's the big, hairy, audacious question I'll try to answer today. Now surely we can all agree that if the Bible is from God, it's an astoundingly wonderful thing. An amazing thing. A miraculously fantastic thing if the Bible is from God. To think that our maker really has spoken. And yet, to believe in something simply because we want it to be true is not rational. Understand that. Wishing is a lot different from informed belief. I tend to believe the St. Louis Cardinals win the World Series every year. But I've definitely found that it doesn't really work. Although it definitely works far more often as a Cardinals fan than as a Mariners fan. But... What if we have more than just believing when it comes to the truth claims of the Bible? What if we have a profound amount of evidence or reasons to believe? Why should I believe the Bible is from God? I don't blame anyone for wanting some proof before they'll accept the wild claim the book we call the Bible is God's revelation to mankind. And there's certainly enough voices who will tell you not to believe it, but I'm here to give you some reasons to stop drinking that Kool Aid and rethink this for yourself. Thankfully, there are reasons. To believe the Bible is from God. A strong case can be made. If not by me in this short talk. Then by someone else with more time and more information. For serious students wanting to research this question. I recommend the book. Evidence that Demands a Verdict. By Josh McDowell. It's about this thick. In two columns. (laughs) It's a great one. Did they put that on the screen? Or I need to say it again. Evidence that Demands a Verdict. Josh McDowell. I drew from that book parts of the rest of what I have to share today. There's scores of books that make the case for the Bible, but most of you are not going to read those books. So let's give it a shot right here and right now. Why should you believe the Bible is from God? We're going to talk about four major reasons to believe. First of all, the Bible is unique. Now, like many of the best words, the word unique has lost some of its edge over time. But when I say the Bible is unique, I mean it is completely and utterly unique. Webster's defines uniqueness like this. One and only, single, soul, different from all others, having no like or equal. It's quite impossible to debate against the fact that the Bible is unique. You can't win that one. Its singular uniqueness is incontrovertible. That does not prove the Bible is from God. But if it is from God, one would obviously expect it to be a unique book and the Bible may well be the only completely unique book that has ever existed as I'll demonstrate in a moment the Bible not only stands apart from other secular books but from other religious books as well in fact the evidences I plan to talk about today are not true of any other book including other religious writings the Bible truly stands alone if you wanted to accept the Quran or the Hindu Vedas or other eastern religious writings or the Book of Mormon or any other book as having come from God, you'd have to do so almost entirely on blind faith. There's simply not rational reasons to believe that those books are from God. Most of them are simply one man's idea about God or various gods from one time, one place. There's nothing unique about that. But I'm going to mention briefly just five of the many ways that the Bible demonstrates its singular uniqueness. First of all, the Bible is unique in its continuity. The Bible is the only book in existence that was written over a 1,500-year period by more than 40 authors, including kings, military leaders, peasants, philosophers, fishermen, tax collectors, musicians, scholars, and shepherds. It was written on three continents, Asia, Africa, and Europe. It originally contained three separate languages, Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek. It includes a wide variety of literary styles, from poetry, to historical narrative, to romance, to personal correspondence, to biography, to parable, to prophecy, and more. Now, in light of the unbelievable diversity I just outlined of the biblical writers and the different times and cultures they lived in, the continuity of the biblical narrative from Genesis through Revelation is simply astounding. How could all of these perspectives and instructions line up so well if they came simply from individuals writing their own opinions over the centuries? By contrast, people can't seem to tell if the Quran calls for peace or violence, because it is so contradictory, even though the same author wrote the whole thing in one generation. What happens? Muhammad changed his mind when he got older, decided Jihad worked better for his agenda than peace. I'll have to add that the Book of Mormon is similar in its inconsistency and lack of continuity, even though just one guy wrote it in his own lifetime. But folks, even many non-believing literary scholars are amazed at the continuity of the Bible, which is really the only complete meta-narrative of the universe. Has ever been attempted. One continuous and consistent story. The Bible includes the first moment of creation while forecasting its last moment. And although that story is told by many authors over centuries upon centuries, it's amazingly harmonious from the first verse to the last. There's no other book that even makes an effort at such a meta narrative. No other book in all of history's writings. The Bible is the only all encompassing story of human existence. What's the glue? What's the glue that holds this collection of writings together in such an amazing way so that it's one continuous story? Could it be the inspiration of God? The Bible says of itself, all Scripture is inspired by God and is useful to teach us what is true and to make us realize what is wrong in our lives. It straightens us out. And teaches us to do what is right. The Greek word translated here is inspired as a reference to breathing. This literally means that Scripture is God-breathed. It means that God breathed His words into the authors and they wrote it down. If this is true, that God did this for every author of Scripture, that He breathed the words through them, then that would explain the continuity of their writings, wouldn't it? Perhaps the most notable point of continuity in Scripture is what's been referred to as the scarlet thread of Christ. Christ. The shed blood of Jesus winds its way through the entire Bible. The promise that a Savior would come is first mentioned in the third chapter of the very first book, somewhere around 4,000 years before Jesus came. Old Testament scripture constantly points forward to Jesus, while New Testament scripture always looks back to him. The fact is that Jesus Christ saturates the beginning, the middle, the end of the Bible. If the death and resurrection of Christ is the central point of human history. And as Christianity claims, then one would expect God's book to be permeated with that fact. And this is exactly what we see, the scarlet thread of Christ woven through Scripture by over 40 authors covering roughly 60 centuries of time. The Bible is unique in its continuity. It's also unique in its circulation. You probably know the Bible is the best-selling book of all time but you may not know how far ahead it is. Books reach the bestsellers list when they sell a few hundred thousand copies. Only a handful of books in history can be said to have sold over 10 million copies. The number of Bibles sold however, like no other book, reaches into the billions. No other book is close enough to even be worth mentioning when compared to the circulation of the Bible. In 1998, one Bible society alone distributed 585 million copies of scripture. Just in that one year. Obviously this does not prove that the Bible is from God. But if it is from God. You would expect it to be. The most circulated book of all time. Wouldn't you? And it is. Nothing else comes close. Maybe the divine inspiration of this book. Is worth your consideration. The Bible is also unique in its translation. Translated into well over 2,000 languages. No other book comes close in the area of translation. Not even close. Why the Bible? Why no other book in history? But that's nothing compared to the uniqueness of the Bible's influence. There's simply no other book in history that holds a candle to the influence of the Bible. Mostly for good, though sometimes it can be twisted, used for bad. There simply is no book that compares in terms of influential power in the history of mankind. Whether we're talking about culture, or literature, or art, or politics, or music, or even science, the influence of the Bible on human history has been absolutely astonishing. No other book compares. Lastly, the Bible is unique in its survival. None of the writings of classical antiquity, such as Homer's Iliad, Plato's Dialogues, any of the rest of the ancient literature we learn about in school, Survived like the Bible has survived. Comparatively speaking, we really don't even know that Plato or Homer were real people who wrote books. Now I'm sure that they were real because I have a little faith. But we can't prove they existed or that they wrote what we say they wrote from textual evidence like we can prove the people and places of the Bible. We just don't have multiple early copies of other ancient texts to prove their authenticity in the way that we have copies of early manuscripts of scripture the point is that we have overwhelming textual evidence that the Bible we have today is true to the original manuscripts and we don't have that kind of evidence for other ancient texts yet somehow people don't have any trouble believing they exist or that they were real, or that the people who wrote them, that that's what they actually said when they wrote them. Because they simply did not survive in any way similar to how the Bible has survived. The Bible is unique in this. As Josh McDowell puts it, Compared with other ancient writings, the Bible has more manuscript evidence to support it than any ten pieces of classical literature combined. Any ten, the top ten, don't compare. Another historian said, To be skeptical of the resultant text of the New Testament books is to allow all of classical antiquity to slip into obscurity for no documents of the ancient period are as well attested bibliographically as the New Testament. Many who study such things, which would probably rule out any of us, right? (laughs) But those who study these things have said that the sheer survival of early copies of Scripture, meaning the fact that they were not all lost or did not disintegrate is nothing less than miraculous no other ancient text survived to the degree that the bible survived that's exactly what you would expect from a book claiming to be the word of god now there are many other ways that the bible demonstrates its singular uniqueness but we must move on to the second reason to believe the bible is from god which is this the bible is historically accurate Now, at first, you might think it isn't all that profound that the Bible doesn't get its historical facts wrong. But I would ask you to think about that some more. Written over a period of 1,500 years. You think about that. How long has America been here? (laughs) A fraction of that. 1,500 years containing many thousands of historical references that have been scrutinized, picked apart, examined, sliced, diced, and held over the fire. Nonetheless, the historical facts of Scripture continue to prove correct. Correct. Scholars who have set out to disprove the historical accuracy of Scripture have done so because they know if they can find an it brings into question the Bible's divine inspiration. Would God misquote historical facts in His book? Did I look down my nose enough when I said that? If it's only a collection of uninspired writings from various human authors, would there not be inconsistencies? Would some of the authors not have even twisted history to score points with their ideology? Would there not be incorrect references to cities, rulers, dates, cultural practices, something? I would think so. Every other history book contains mistakes. Why not the Bible? Now, if it would prove that the Bible is not from God to find historical inaccuracies, then what does it prove if we can't find any? And notice I did not say people haven't tried to make the case that the Bible has been wrong. Oh, they've tried very, very hard. But what would it prove if over and over again supposed inaccuracies in Scripture were later discovered to have been completely accurate all along? What if skeptical scholars kept finding out that the Bible's right, or at least very well could be right in every single historical reference? You see, over and over again, that very thing has happened. Let me give you just a few examples of many The Bible mentions a group of people known as the Hittites during the time of Abraham. For decades, historians thought the Hittites must be a mythological invention of Scripture because they could not find any record of this ancient people group. And, of course, they made sure to say so in their history books during those uninformed decades. However, since then, archaeologists have uncovered more than 1,200 years of Hittite civilization. Oops. See, the Bible was right all along. Over the last few decades, archaeologists have repeatedly proven that the walls of Jericho fell down suddenly, just as the Bible says they did. The March 5, 1990 edition of Time magazine includes an article titled, Score One for the Bible, in which archaeologist Kathleen Kenyon substantiated the fact that Jericho's walls fell, quote, suddenly and dramatically. Many other archaeologists have since confirmed this. Though their intentions were to show, hey, here's something we can go dig up and figure out and find something wrong with the Bible. Their intentions were to show the Bible story obviously could not have happened. Prominent archaeologists repeatedly found that the Bible was right all along. We could go on and on. The cities of Sodom and Gomorrah were long thought to be mythological. That was convenient. Until they dug them up. And they found that these cities happened to have been catastrophically destroyed by something like fire and brimstone at about the time of Abraham and Lot. The Gospel of Luke, which contains a wealth of historical facts, is widely regarded as one of the most, of the few accurate uh, accounts of first century history that we have. It turns out that every single historical detail in Luke is exactly correct. The historical accuracy of Scripture is overwhelming in its scope and its consistency. That may not prove that the Bible is from God, but it is enough to raise a lot of eyebrows. In fact, many archaeologists and other scholars who have looked carefully enough at the evidence have found themselves believing the Bible must be from God and ultimately coming to faith in Christ. There are many stories. One example is archaeologist William F. Albright, who's considered perhaps the greatest archaeologist of all time. He wound up believing Jesus, not before his work as an archaeologist, but because of the archaeological evidence he found that supported the historicity of the Bible. It's absolutely a true fact that many historians and archaeologists who set out to disprove the Bible have wound up trusting Jesus as their Savior instead. Why do they make that huge leap? Because when you discover firsthand how true to the facts the Bible is, you're forced to take more seriously the idea that it could be inspired by God. And if it's inspired by God, then the gospel message it contains is something worth basing your life upon. The third... And perhaps most compelling reason to believe is that the Bible's many prophecies have been 100% correct. By definition, prophecy is information that has been revealed to an individual by God. Many prophecies contain a prediction of a future event. As the Apostle Peter said, Above all, you must understand that no prophecy in Scripture ever came from the prophets themselves or because they wanted to prophesy. It was the Holy Spirit who moved the prophets to speak from God. There are over 1,000 specific prophecies recorded in the Bible. At least 668 of those have been already been fulfilled, to a T. All of them have been picked apart by skeptics, but one of those 668 have, but not one of those 668 has ever been proven to be false. With all their efforts, the remaining prophecies have yet to occur and pertain primarily to the second coming of Christ. Let me reiterate the prophecies of Scripture. Almost 700 of them so far are not just 95% accurate. They're not just partially right. All of them can be shown to have been fulfilled in real history. We're talking about hundreds of prophecies that were spoken, recorded, and later fulfilled over a period of several thousand years. All contained in one book. Let's look at just one of those 668 prophecies. Not all biblical prophecies pertain to Christ, but many of them do. So many things about the life of Jesus were predicted ahead of time by God's prophets, including his death, burial, and his resurrection. But one prophet went so far as to predict the exact time that the anointed one would come. By the way, anointed one is what the Hebrew-based word Messiah means, and Christ is the Greek form of the word Messiah. Christ, Messiah, anointed one, same thing. Yes, I know there's more to that discussion, Tim. I see your face back there. You know it all. We find this prophecy in Daniel 9, 25 through 26. Let's read it. Now listen and understand. Seven sets of seven plus 62 sets of seven will pass from the time the command is given to rebuild Jerusalem until the anointed one comes. Jerusalem will be rebuilt Rebuilt with streets and strong defenses despite the perilous time. After this period of 62 sets of seven, the anointed one will be killed, appearing to have accomplished nothing. And a ruler will arise whose armies will destroy the city and the temple. The end will come with a flood and war and its miseries are decreed from that time to the very end. Now, I'm not going to try to get bogged down and I'm not going to get bogged down in all of this and try to meticulously hash out all of this prophecy. So let's focus in on the underlying portion of the passage, verse 25. And if we assume sets of seven refers to sets of seven years. Very reasonable. Then seven sets of seven plus 62 sets of seven equals 483 years, which were to pass between the decree issued to rebuild Jerusalem and the coming of this anointed one, the Messiah. 483 years. That's a pretty specific prediction, isn't it? And amazingly, sometime after this, the Persian king Artaxerxes did, in fact, issue a decree to rebuild Jerusalem. We have historical record of him doing so on March the 5th, 444 B.C. If Daniel's prophecy were come true, 483 years would need to pass from that fixed date until Jesus presented himself as the anointed one. Guess what? The prophecy came true to the exact year, possibly to the day. You see, it can be shown that 483 years after Artaxerxes' decree to rebuild Jerusalem, Jesus rode into town on the foal of a donkey... And allowed the people to proclaim him as Messiah, literally the anointed one. They waved palm branches as they praised him in the streets on what we now call Palm Sunday. This can be shown to have taken place 483 years after the decree to rebuild Jerusalem. And if you're thinking the math is six years off, that's a calendar issue. But without getting technical, it really was 483 years after the decree from Artaxerxes when Jesus presented himself, or came into town as the anointed one. Additionally, as we, read, as we read, Daniel's prophecy said this Messiah would be killed, appearing to have accomplished nothing. Sounds a lot like Jesus dying on the cross before he ever uh, began to rule or save anyone. And as we read, the prophecy said a ruler would then arise and destroy Jerusalem. This also happened, just as Daniel said it would, in AD 70, after the Roman emperor Vespasian came to power, killing something like a million Jews, sacking Jerusalem, and destroying the temple. This just one example. Here's one more area of example. In Isaiah 53, the prophet makes many precise predictions about the Messiah. Many of you are familiar with Isaiah 53. There's so many things there that you feel like you're reading the gospel account, but it's before it happened. For many years, skeptics claimed that these prophecies were too detailed, too specific, too accurate to have been written before Jesus came. So they asserted with confidence that these prophecies these must have been added in later by those you know, trying to make Christianity more believable. This was accepted fact among unbelieving scholars for decades, that the prophecies of Isaiah must have been doctored after the supposed Messiah came. This was their answer to those very specific prophecies all coming true in Christ for a very long time. But then one day, a Bedouin shepherd left his sheep and goats to look for a stray. He found a cave in a crevice among the limestone cliffs. He tossed a rock in instead of hearing a thud. When it hit, he heard something break. With a cousin and a friend, he entered the cave and found clay jars holding the first of the Dead Sea Scrolls. Prior to that day, the oldest known copy of Isaiah in our modern world was dated between 800 and 900 years after Christ. Those old documents generally just didn't last for thousands of years. And so they kept copying them and copying them. There were so many copies, we can know that they all go back and must be right to the original because there's so many of them, but we only had a copy of Isaiah that was 800 or 900 years after Christ at this point. Even though Isaiah had lived long before Christ, no earlier copies of what he had written had survived, or so we thought. That's why people could say, maybe they were changed after Christ. Not really a strong argument for various other reasons, but it was all put to rest by the Dead Sea Scrolls. Because the first handful of uh, those scrolls that Bedouin shepherd brought out of the cave included a copy of Isaiah, which was 900 to 1,000 years older than the previously found manuscripts. In other words, they were written at least a century before Jesus walked this earth. And so everyone now accepts that Isaiah 53 was written down just as we have it long before Jesus came and fulfilled it perfectly. For example, in the fact that he would be whipped and beaten for our transgressions. Among many other specific things which he could not have controlled. Now let me ask you a question. Put aside all of your bias for a moment. And think about this. If an ancient book surfaced today, and if it could be proven that it contained hundreds of predictions that had each and every one come true in every detail over a period of thousands of years. and If that book claimed to be the written word of God, what would you think about that book? Wouldn't you at least read it? Would you be willing to listen to some sermons from it? Would you at least have a reasonable respect for those who have decided to believe the Bible as God's truth? And now what if that same book contained a few predictions that were still to come? What if it contained predictions about the end of the world as we know it? What if it said that your actions or inactions and specifically how you respond to Christ will determine whether that conclusion will be good for you or bad for you? Wouldn't you possibly even believe enough to do whatever that book said you needed to do to make sure you're on the right side of things at the end? (laughs) Other than those predictions which are yet to happen, 100% of the Bible's prophecies have been fulfilled in every detail. I don't think that pattern's going to change. And if God himself were not intimately involved in what was being written down on those ancient pages of Scripture, how could all these prophecies have come true? How could there not be at least a few completely and utterly incorrect prophecies? Think about it. The fourth reason to believe the Bible is from God is this. The truth of the Bible can be personally experienced. This is what I was trying to say about faith in the beginning. Yes, the Bible can stand up under rational examination. Yes, tangible evidence abounds to support the truth of its factual content. And yet, there is such a huge part of the power of Scripture that comes down, not to something mental, but to something spiritual. Obviously, if the Bible is from God, then it's not merely an academic book for us to try to prove or disprove as if our opinions mattered. In John 4, Jesus said, God is spirit, and those who want to communicate with him must communicate in spirit. In another place, we're told that only the Holy Spirit can bring the words of Scripture to life for a person, making it something that is both living and active, able to cut through to our very souls. In order to to really be believed, the truth of the Bible must be personally experienced. A few years ago, I was having lunch with a friend of mine who's a former agnostic. She's now a Rutgers University professor. Pretty sharp lady. Prior to her conversion... She was one of those people who was quite hostile toward the God she wasn't sure existed. Interesting thing in itself. But I remember what she said to those of us at the table that day. My friend said, I remember the blessing of knowing. She said, all of the rationale in the world could only take me so far as I considered Christianity because there was also rationale on the other side. And I could have argued with myself about it all forever. Forever. But she said a day came when she just knew. She just knew that the Bible and all that it said about Jesus and God's plan for humanity was simply true. She knew. My friend called that that moment the blessing of knowing. Folks, even if I were to successfully make an intellectual case that it is rational to accept the Bible as the Word of God, that can only take you so far. The Book of Hebrews tells us that faith is the assurance of things unseen, and that only by faith in the unseen can a person come to God. 1 Corinthians two fourteen tells us unspiritual people cannot understand, can't understand spiritual things, and so at some point this all comes down to an empowered decision to believe. Yes, you must respond to God by believing. Or you can choose to ignore or reject the moment and turn a deaf ear to the one who is speaking. My challenge to you, if you are a skeptic, is to come as close to God as open-minded rationality can take you and then have the faith to ask him to lead you the rest of the way. Dare to ask God to help you, believe. Listen, God does exactly that. He helps people believe. Theologians debate how all this happens, what order, But I'll give you this. From Psalm 25, 14, where the Bible says, Friendship with the Lord is reserved for those who fear Him. With them He shares the secrets of His covenant, His promise, His word. Old Covenant and new covenant. That's what the Bible is. It comes a point where if you want to know more, you have to approach God with humility, with a kind of fear or reverence, and at least an open-mindedness born out of a spark of faith. When does that faith become saving faith? That's kind of another sermon. But I can tell you there must come a point in your spiritual journey when you lay down your pride and your doubt and your self-sufficiency. A point when you trust the word of Christ instead of yourself. Questions can only take you so far. At some point you just have to believe in order to really know God. The classic French philosopher Blaise Pascal said, the evidence for God's existence and his gift is more than compelling. But those who insist that they have no need of him or it, will always find ways to discount the offer. The choice to believe is not, or not believe is yours. God is involved, but you'll make a choice. And after all, you did choose to come here today, so perhaps you're on your way. Perhaps you're coming with the kind of open-minded humility that is required to hear from God. He only walks through open doors. In Psalm 8:17, God said, those who search for me will surely find me. I'm under no delusion that I can talk anyone into the kingdom of God this morning. Nor do I think people come to Christ without the drawing of the Holy Spirit. But I also know that the spiritual power of the gospel of Jesus Christ is unleashed when it is shared. Paul said, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. The Bible is that word of Christ. And through it, His Spirit can spark your faith to life. The Bible says we need a Savior. And it tells us that Savior is Jesus. If the Bible's from God, the most important message he has in it for you is that Jesus died on the cross for your sins, that he rose on the third day conquering death, and that if you will trust him as your Savior and Lord, you can be forgiven. You can learn to walk with God on this earth, and indeed, you can live forever with him. Can you sense the Holy Spirit speaking in your heart today? Is there something going on that's deeper than all these words that I've spoken? Are you willing to respond to this invisible God who is spiritually calling to you right now? I can kind of help you know what to say to him. If you'd like to trust in Christ as your Savior today, would you bow your heads with me if you're willing? And let's just be in prayer. So just give some guidance today. If you want to respond, if the Holy Spirit is moving in your heart, Would you just say yes to God? Or what am I saying yes to? You're saying yes to turning away from yourself and your pride and what you think you know and surrendering to Christ to be your Savior and your Lord, your leader in life, your King. We refer to that sometimes as repentant faith. You're turning from sin and self to Christ, receiving His gift. It's not magic words. Just tell Him. Just say yes. Just believe in Him. Put your full faith in Him. And now I pray for all of us that we would learn to share with those who do not believe. That we would be like the Apostle Paul and try by all, all possible means to persuade some to try to care enough even to keep going back at it even after all the rejections. God, you you love the people that we know and you want them to be saved. I believe that. And I know that there's a part I have to play in it. And when I don't do it, something is not working right in your plan. Help us, Lord, to share. Make us people that others want to ask questions of. That when they ask us to give the reason for our hope that's just so much easier. Lord help us to live a life that makes them ask us. And as that verse also says to do it with gentleness and respect. Change our hearts God. Grow us up in faith. Let us not just live our lives and kind of spin our wheels and never make a difference. Let us be light and salt. Let us share about Jesus and the hope that we have in your word, the promises, grow our faith. In Jesus' name, amen. If you made a decision today or recently about Jesus, I sure hope you'll let me know. You can, uh, you can just mark your response card, drop it in the box on that, or you can email me or you can come talk to me. Let us know so I can talk to you about next steps. I promise I'm not pushy. If you don't, it, we'll, we'll go, I'll, I'll go with what you're comfortable with. If, it's, if you just want to email, we we'll start there. I'm not going to come pound on your door. Let me know, please. God is good, Amen. Thanks for listening to Go Church's weekly sermon podcast. If you enjoyed the sermon, be sure to rate and review us. If you want to learn more about the ministry of Go Church or catch up on previous sermons, check out our website, www.gochurchpnw.com. You can also connect with Go Church on Facebook and Instagram.